hello everyone and welcome to Fraser's Capital Podcast. Today I'm having a chat with Cord Walker. He founded Ethical Equities, an independent research site that was an early supporter of some of Australia's highest returning stocks lately, like Prometicus, Nanosonics, um, Appen and Ordinate. Cord, first I'd like to ask you, um, what was it like at... Motley Fool. And for those who don't know what Motley Fool is, it's kind of like, um, what's the right word? They kind of like spam you with like random stock things, like this stock is going up 10x in the next year. Um, but if I, as far as I'm aware, you had thousands all right, of subscribers. All right, yeah. that, so, um, <laughs> th- thanks for that introduction, um, Michael. Yeah. Uh, so before I uh, had my own websites, Ethical Equities and a Rich Life, I uh, worked at Motley Fool, which is a stock tipping newsletter uh, business. I Actually, was quite when I was quite young. I was running the one of their small cap services in Australia, and that was a great experience. And I had look, there might be a little bit of aggressive advertising at, at the front of Motley Fool, as you've pointed out. But once you get in there, they are um, basically giving stock recommendations, taking the price the day afterwards, and then uh, measuring how that goes against the market. So it was a big challenge, especially as uh, our membership uh, for that particular service I was running grew. Because we'd recommend a stock and it would jump like 15% and that'd be your starting price the next day. So, it was right. quite a challenge to beat the market. Luckily, um, well, because I was in a sort of early stages of a multi-year bull market in growth stocks, I did manage to beat the market <laughs> quite well because that seemed to uh, suit my style. Right. Do you think it made an impact, the fact that you're telling thousands and thousands of retail investors that the next day putting $10,000 orders each. Yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, one Some of the- Some random small cap has like 4 million bucks in their order book. <laughs> one of the big um, debates we have is, I remember, I think Live Tiles was the final straw. One of the big debates we would have would be whether to um, give these recommendations outside of market hours or during market hours. Now, different services at Motley Fool do it in different ways. But um, for my service, I think the last time we did, I did it um, out of market hours was Live Tiles. And there was this massive- uh, offer for, for about 20 cents, you know, hundreds of thousands of shares that was just sitting there for, for a week or more. And then the next morning, there was about, you know, 200 orders for up to, you know, 22 cents on the buy side. And so, what did the person selling do? They just pulled their massive order, which of course exacerbated the pop massively. So, you know, you had to get, uh, you had to react and basically learn how to try to counteract that kind of thing. And wh- one of the ways of doing it is to at least not do the recommendation outside of hours. But that was the kind of funny thing that I'd spend my uh, days stressing about, basically. Right. And how often did you, how did you recommend a stock? Like, did you have like a core five? Yeah, was so that, weekly? Was that's it- another debatable point, actually. You're really touching on all the um, the soft spots here. So, the, the model of the service is like one stock a month, which is obviously um, a challenge because your great, your best ideas don't necessarily come one stock a month. So now I run my own thing. I don't do it one stock a month anymore. I just share what I'm doing when when I do it, basically, rather than um, have this sort of artificial deadline. And indeed, that's the kind of thing that not all the Motley Fool services uh, follow that structure. And I was able to get some flexibility there as well. But uh, yeah, ultimately, I actually think that I personally benefited greatly from the discipline of having to come up with roughly an idea once every month, because uh, you know, your brain's a muscle like anything else. And the search, the constant search for a good small cap stock uh, to recommend people that I thought had great prospects, 
every single month. That was pressure, but it was good pressure. And honestly, it's given me skills that I live off today. So I'm, I'm pretty grateful for the experience. All right, was anything that was uh, particularly explosive or positive that? Yeah, what was so, your biggest win? You got a couple, I know. Yeah, well, we'll put in, we'll put the biggest win and then the and then the the biggest embarrassing lot like failure, which I don't like talking about. But the biggest win, as probably a few listeners would know, hopefully were part of it, was uh, recommending Pro Medicus when it was a dollar thirty five. What is it now? Like Twenty seven. Well, before we get there, the next day after we recommended it went straight to a dollar fifty five. Um, so what are those numbers again, remind me? It was a dollar thirty. It was a dollar thirty-five when we were looking at it. We yeah. recommended it, and then the next day it was trading at a dollar fifty-five. So at the time, I remember stressing out quite a bit over this sort of 15 percent pop that we'd had the next day. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm fifteen percent underwater, basically, blah blah blah. As it happened, it never went back down to a dollar thirty-five. That was it. Um, and you know, now it's I think twenty-seven dollars, and I ended up selling quite a lot over thirty dollars, but uh, which I kind of partly regret now because it's still a very high quality business. Uh, so, what do you think about it now that it's reached the lofty heights of, uh, I guess, 20 27, times? $27. 20 times what you recommended? Something uh, like more, that. Yeah, I think what I recommended, I bought it initially before I was actually advising that service. So, my actual cost basis was below that. But uh, basically, you know, I wrote, I think last year, a piece about ProMedicus where I called it an example of frothy mouthed FOMO accumulation. And that was when it was above $30 and heralded the the beginning of my big sell down. Oh, I nailed it. Uh, well, no, not not quite though, because I was, um, you know, I was sort of hoping that it would really, some of the heat would come out of it, but it never really has. And it's sort of $27 now. And even though it's my second biggest position, I feel like it really should be my uh, biggest position because mm-hmm. I, I think on the ASX, it's the highest quality business. The reason I think that is basically because it absolutely dominates its niche. It's a radio. Like the entire ASX. Yeah, so I think it's the best quality business on the ASX for sure. Okay, go Like on. maybe CSL is a better quality business, but if you're looking at small caps, which is what I do, it's the best quality business in my universe. Um, the reason is because, I mean, it's a stock you'd quite like actually if you just ignored the fact that it's profitable. If you imagined it was losing <laughs> lots of money, you'd really love nah, it. Nah, the top line's 20%. It's too low for me. It's not Yeah, so. well, maybe. So I'm old-fashioned that maybe way. Maybe a dollar. You should have told me then. Probably your now. listeners should try to... Should We should probably point out at this point that I'm... The relatively old-fashioned investor, and I like to see dividends, free cash flow, and profits. But I'm happy to pay high multiples if I think the quality is there. Um, yeah. So Promedicus, um, it basically has developed the radiology imaging software that allows uh, radiologists and doctors to stream massive radiology files. So one easy way to think of this—it's not perfectly accurate—but one easy way to think of this is the difference between you downloading a movie on iTunes and you just sort of streaming that movie on Netflix. Obviously, it's a lot quicker to find the spot you want in Netflix. Now, these massive images are a little bit like a movie, except they're actually bigger files than a movie. And radiologists look through them. They look through the slices of them. Um, just how, just like you might choose a spot in a movie where you want to zoom in on and watch that bit over and over again. For them, it's actually zoom in on it. Um, so basically the technology that allows these images to be streamed rather than downloaded is a massive time saver for radiologists. And that's why it's so successful. It's actually not particularly easy to do this, but once you are the dominant provider in this server-side rendering of radiology imaging, you are the natural platform for AI to get involved in radiology. And they already have machine learning algorithms that are helping, um, 
radiologists diagnose stuff on those platforms. They're not in production yet. They've developed the first one, but their real hope is to get other people and other academics who are already using the system to be developing their own algorithms. And at that point, they sort of start becoming more than just a software business and they're a platform business. So that's the sort of misunderstood part. Having said that, I fully, I readily admit it's very expensive, which is why I sold down a lot above $30. I was just wishing that I'd have an opportunity to buy it that cheaper. Right. So PME, for, uh, if somebody wants to know the stats, it's about $2.8 billion market cap, uh, $60 million of revenue, and $40 million of EBITDA. So that's like a sales multiple. It's reporting on Thursday as well, so I'm going to either look really smart <laughs> or stupid. It's a sales multiple about 46, which is generally high even for explosive growth US software firms. Um, but it'll be interesting. I guess you've caught the increase in multiple and yeah, rapid so growth. I'd actually be happy to see the share price come down a lot. And I've, I've definitely got an appetite to start accumulating again at the right price. Right. Do you think it's, um, I mean, one of the ways I look at growth stocks is I feel like the more explosive the growth is, the more evidence you have that people love it. You know, if 20% people, if people, if 20% more people are buying a product this year than last year, that's a different story to... 100% more people are buying it this year than last yeah, year. Yeah, I, I feel like if so we... So do you think that, do you think that 20% growth line kind of implies a level of maturity? You know, like companies like Zero, for example, in Australia. Yeah, not, well so not really. Um, I guess there's two things I'd say against that. One, a more general point. Um, I feel like if you and I were in an argument with traditional value investors, we'd, we'd be on the same size of the argument. But then I think when we look at our actual approach to growth investing... I'm a little bit more conservative than you and I look for, I guess, I'm looking for mispricing in smaller companies. I'm looking for like a clear misunderstanding based on people not um, not having looked close enough. Uh, whereas I think that your strategy is very interesting and something I wish I was better at, which is sort of buying and holding these big software stocks that could really own a space. Now, I think Prometicus could actually excite you if you looked at the North American revenue, which is the revenue from... Uh, the part of the business that I just described. Part of the reason that top line growth doesn't look as good as it really is, is because there are two businesses in Promoticus. There's one sort of more legacy um, radiology imaging system, which is sort of basically an administrative software, which is still meaningful for the company and makes and is why it was profit and profitable. And, and that's the profit they've used to develop this new line. And so that revenue is not growing very quickly although it does grow, has grown a little bit. And then on top of that, you have some in, when they sell to public, uh, public healthcare systems, they tend to be lumpy um, fees up front that will right. last for a few years. So you do have a certain lumpiness like that, which can make the software. Which this is the actual can, software. Yeah. So, software they do, so most of the software is um, sold sort of on a quasi subscription basis in right. that they don't charge a big upfront fee there's no perpetual license. They just, um, you know, go in and set it up. They implement it for which there's a smaller fee and then they get transaction-based revenue, which is great because they're leveraged to the growth of the underlying businesses they're serving. However, when they go and install in like a German hospital, for example, they just get sort of three years of revenue up front from that. And Will that's they account it. for that uh, when it happens? Because I know companies like Alteryx. Actually, I feel like there has, I think there might've been accounting rules changed that actually right. have changed some of that up. Um, so I'd have to look into that mm. uh, more closely, but I just know that that can cause distortions in the revenue growth rate. However, none of this changes the fact that this is exactly. not a Fraser's Capital 100% <laughs> per annum revenue growth business. Um, so it falls short yeah. on on that you know measure if that's your requirement. 
Um, the accounting stuff's interesting because I feel like that was a bit of a red herring for people in Alteryx, which I think we both kind of like. Yeah. It's kind of, um, it's right, how do you describe Alteryx? It's kind of a way of accumulating data. So if you've ever worked an entry-level job at a bank or somewhere where you use lots of spreadsheets, often you have like different inputs from different sources. You'll then put it into a file, you'll change the dates, change the formats, do a few simple changes, then give some kind of output into a database. Alteryx is something that can like make, automate that entire thing. Um, but basically, they had a, there was an accounting rule change which affected the way that um, they accounted for their revenue because they're often on one to, to two or sometimes three-year contracts. Um, and that change meant that a few people wrote these long bearish theses saying that Alteryx was overstating their revenue. Um, the stock dropped, you know, literally 40%. Um, and now it's bounced straight back. Um, so the short interest kind of rocketed up almost, uh, I think it was well no, about I wish, I wish you'd told me about this opportunity at the time. It's, Mate, it's I wrote like, it in my oh, newsletter. Oh, I should have subscribed. <laughs> uh, now I'm subscribed, I promise. Anyway, yeah, we had a phone call with management. They're like, well, yeah, well, you know, the accounting standards have changed, but our accounting is consistent year to year. So we're still adding users. Every user is still spending more, significantly more every year on average. You know, they're the key metrics. You know, whether they do it one particular way, as long as they're consistent and as long as those key KPIs are moving in the right direction, um, it's completely fine. Yeah, but I mean, the other thing was something like Alteryx, which sort of gives me the strength to hold on because, you know, as I've said, I'm more of an expert in the sort of small cap Australian stocks. But one of the reasons I own and, and have managed to hold Alteryx, which was in, originally actually uh, suggested to me by a Motley Fool colleague, um, mm-hmm. Anuban Mahanti, and uh, basically... The reason that I can hold on is because you can see that it's almost certainly one of very few companies that are going to end up owning um, owning this space and uh, being the dominant software provider to solve these particular class of problems. And Alteryx is sort of out in front there and it has like extremely significant revenues. And basically, that's the kind of opportunity that I don't see very often in Australia. So... On sort of on occasion, especially with my US investors investing, I'm sort of willing to invest, I guess, more of an, in a Fraser's Capital style, looking at the bigger, very long term picture. But it's sort of personally, when I when I sit down and, and try to value stocks, I, I really want to be able to model out that free cash flow with a little yeah. bit more clarity. So for me, it, it's something that I'm learning to get better at, basically. Mm. Just look at your stock price now. So it went from 147 down to 80, 147 in say September last year, down to 87. Now back up to 142. Yeah, I feel like That's I slipped through that whole thing. Unfortunately, I think I was buying pity. literally every time it made a new low. Basically, I was like hitting this one. That's gutsy. Anyway, so before we get into your style, I feel like also to balance things out, I should probably share my my worst defeat, which will actually probably fold quite nicely into a. Uh, a stock that you like. So basically, the the worst mistake I've made probably as a, as a stock picker was um, about a company called TouchCorp, and a few people might uh, recognise the name of that stock uh, because it's now part of Afterpay TouchCorp. Essentially, I'd thought you know TouchCorp was had a lot of promise uh, from way, from way back when it listed, but unfortunately, a few years in, it sort of missed its guidance, and also its uh, founder and CEO unfortunately died. And I felt, oh, you know, it's sort of not growing as quickly as I was hoping it would. And the reason, by the way, it wasn't is because ultimately uh, its business was relying on its customers growing. And as it all turned out, Afterpay was its sort of number one customer 
today. But back then, Afterpay was tiny, doing very little volume, and they were getting extremely cheap pricing from TouchCorp. But what TouchCorp owned was a bunch of Afterpay shares because that's how they'd sort of struck the deal where they'd provide this payment processing to Afterpay. So that was the actual huge opportunity, which was never the reason I'd invested in TouchCorp in the first place. So for me, when the TouchCorp itself wasn't growing and the CEO was gone, I felt like the thesis was broken, but actually the value of the stock at that point was in its fairly large shareholding of Afterpay. And now I thought that, that would um, provide some sort of buffer when I issued a sell recommendation, but unfortunately it didn't. And then you had this, if you go and look at the bottom there, the, the best possible time basically to buy Afterpay was after we did this sell recommendation because it was trading at $1.50 and it tanked down to just almost above, just above a dollar. Um, as as we, as people sort of rushed the exit, and it was the it was the worst investing mistake of my life. Not just because we booked a loss because of that big drop down, but what also was that? That was like three or four years ago, right? Yeah, that's so a few after years pay would be a few dollars, or yeah. So I can't remember afterpay share price, but basically where where it got to was pretty much ascribing zero value to the business of TouchCorp whatsoever, and you were just buying essentially the afterpay shares within TouchCorp. Right. Now, what ended up happening in the end was Afterpay took over, maybe it wasn't zero value, but it was very little value. Afterpay ended up sort of merging and basically taking over TouchCorp by issuing shares. So, if you'd bought TouchCorp shares um, at a dollar then, you would have ended up with a bunch more Afterpay shares in the end. Now, probably one of the classic uh, cognitive errors I feel people make is that they say, oh, it was the sell that was the mistake and then... Um, you know, because look at the gains Stop I'd have if I didn't yeah. sell. But it's not that simple. The mistake wasn't just that I sold. The mistake was that I didn't then turn around and be like, oh, this has now gone too low. I should buy back in. And that's probably because I've consistently underestimated sort of how well Afterpay would, would perform, um, which is probably a, a good a good staging for me to ask. So why do you like Afterpay? <laughs> I feel like I've talked about Afterpay so much. But justify um, it to me now. I think back then, like I think at the beginning, if you look at if you look at most of the best investment returns, so overseas you'd think of things like Netflix, early days Amazon, um, something like Tesla, um, particularly early days Tesla, uh, early days Afterpay. Um, the only there was there was one common theme to all of them, and that's they had explosive growth in both users and any KPI you cared to look at. And people loved it. And people loved it. Like whether you looked at reviews, uh, user engagement how many times people are using the product, the time spent on the platform in the case of something like Netflix. Like that came first. Um, but you could always, but even, if you, even if you got that wrong, even if you said, actually, I don't really understand this new thing after pay, maybe it's a millennial thing, you could still have seen the explosive growth and then said, maybe there's something here. I might do some more work to understand why millions of people just signed up to this thing. Or in Afterpay's case, back in the day, you know, they went from tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands to millions. You know, that's, that's intrinsically interesting to me. So if you see that in any context, you want to know what, what it's about. Or, you know, I want to know what it's about. Because like, a lot of the best investment stories and even the most interesting products you want to use in your life um, have that kind of profile. But, but how sure are we in the end? I mean, so there's, if there's any one stock which for me, and like full disclosure, I've been consistently wrong about it. So, you know, take anything I say with a grain of salt. But for me, there's no one stock that better encapsulates YOLO investing than Afterpay. Like, not only... Is, does the company itself lose money? Not only does the company itself rely on giving credit to other people, but its very customers are basically YOLOing it and spending money they don't have. 
So, you know, what makes you so sure that this YOLO stock's ever going to actually make a profit? Um, I think they're just still in that investing stage and very comfortable with it. I mean, they've got, they do make money. So, and then they, then they choose what to spend it in it and they spend it in, a, in achieving triple digit growth. That's kind of how I see it. And so why do I, why do I say that? Well, let's say they do 4%, take a 4% margin on transaction. Um, if you analyze that, I mean, they're kind of six to eight weeks, depending where you are. If you analyze that, get to a higher gross rate than a credit card gross rate. Um, you know, it's like in the 30s instead of in the 20s. Yeah, I, um, so I don't want to come across as an afterpay, yeah, okay. afterpay bear here, right? But yeah. at the same time, you know, there's a, there are a few risks to that, right? Like what if there's like more and more competition? What if that take rate gets um, lower and lower? What At what point does afterpay... Um, start getting squeezed and it has to either choose between its triple digit growth or um, the sort of viability of its business. Like at some point it has to either say, well, no, we're not going to sacrifice any more margin or um, it might stop growing so quickly because somebody else is sort of competing out that margin. I think the competition is on two sides. So it's like the customers and the merchant. Um, I think the one that was most relevant to what you're saying, which people are thinking about is will competition from all these different buy now, pay later um, providers will that push down the take rate of afterpay um, and you know compete away all the excess profits? Um, and there's a couple of things there. I think the value proposition to the merchant is the excess demand that afterpay provides for them. Um, that is the key selling point. So when I first looked at afterpay, which was a very long time ago, like literally right when they IPO'd, um, that was the bit I didn't get. I was like, if you're a low margin retailer selling t-shirts um, and your margin is whatever, probably horrific. I um, mean, e-commerce, um, how are you going to spend 4%? And the answer to that is you get 25% incremental demand. Yeah, but um, and also you might have to put up your prices a little bit across the board. And maybe across the board you do, but it's better. That's better. Yeah, no, want, it pays off. That's because the whole your point. Profits, yeah, your profits on that extra 25% are huge. Because it becomes this sort of perverse race to the bottom, right? Which is why, which is what I should have seen, which is why like when your competitor gets it and they're getting more business and they're getting your business now because they've got afterpay you need to get afterpay as well so that's how it spreads so so quickly yeah, and and okay. also once people started using afterpay they started expecting that of retailers exactly but imagine a world i mean i guess there's two, there's, this this comes up a lot this argument comes up a lot what happens when you know it's just a race to the bottom and soon everyone will have it imagine a world where afterpay is everywhere firstly that's gonna be amazing for the, the share price um, but secondly, I feel like there's something more going on. I think there's something psychological going on. I think like each individual spends more when they can afterpay something. Um, I feel like I've noticed that, you know, in myself, certainly people can see that behavior. So I think even then somebody would probably, you know, if a shop, if 99.9% .9 of shops had afterpay and one shop took it off um, or a few shops took it off, I reckon those shops, irrespective of competition, would see a drop in demand um, because there'd be some people that would be more likely to buy yeah. with that. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Well, I, I do. And I think I that there's, it goes deep. Well, I think that's just... why I think I was ultimately wrong about it because there's going to be an inherent optionality in becoming a standard form of payments, which allows them to profit in multiple different ways, even if they're not completely clear at the current time. Having said all that, I still can't, what my brain gets stuck on with Afterpay is that the whole thing just seems so silly to me. Like it seems so crazy that, um, a bit, it makes sense, but at the same time, it seems so crazy to me that anyone who can afford it would want to break up their uh, payments into four. And I think what it, the reason is that people like psychologically like paying later or whatever. 
Smaller amounts, maybe. It's it just I, works. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It obviously does work psychologically. For me, it doesn't work, and it's one of those sort of projecting ones where I'm like, no, the last thing I want is sort of like debts that I can't keep track of. I want to know that you know, as I walk the streets, I'm not going to have people randomly take money out of my account that I'm not expecting. But, um, you know, uh, certain people like that. I do wonder though if I, if this ever does fall in trouble. I do think that there's still probably are some questions about you know, what sort of credit risks it's taking. It, if we were happen to have a downturn, like, quite quickly, I imagine that it might actually be a bit uglier for afterpay than people are currently assuming. But at the same time, you know, this is not a stock I'd ever bet against. It's just one that I just don't get. And, you know, you don't, you, you don't have to pat all the fluffy dogs. In fact, you can't pat all the fluffy dogs. So, it's one that I'm sort of just letting go. Watch from the sidelines. Um, actually, but uh, another stock that I never bought that I think would be an interesting one to talk about, and I'm happy to say that I think it has a, a much more positive impact on the world, is Avita Healthcare. Now, not only is this sort of a massive multi-bagger on the ASX that I should have bought several years ago, but also it um, can, you know, essentially help treat rather severe burns in a way that no other product can. And this is a hugely meaningful for you know, children that might have been extremely badly injured to be able to make a faster and fuller recovery. You've got an extremely uh, marked uh, positive impact on the world, unlike other stocks such as uh, whatever, <laughs> Afterpay or something. Um, so, I was wondering Afterpay if you could tell- offering credit to people who otherwise wouldn't have it. Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> so, they, they really needed okay, those, those new swimmers. Anyway, no, it's back- a democratic approach to credit. Can, anyway. can you tell us how you discovered Avita and, like, and, you know, I think perhaps- be interesting to tie it into some of your background in, in sort of chemistry as well. Yeah, I mean, um, Avita is just one of those stocks that you're kind of aware of for a while and then finally look into it properly and you're like, wow, there's something here. Um, so, I did discuss the last podcast. I won't go into too much depth, but, you know, as... Well, let's say... Let, well, tell, tell the listeners, for if you didn't listen to the last podcast, just a, a quick two-liner on what it does. The quick summary is... Um, if you have a significant burn or a significant injury, um, like high surface area injury, um, typically the way that would be treated is there'll be a skin graft. So the skin grafts are actually pretty horrific. They're basically a second injury. It's kind of like grating off a bit of skin. And if you have like a large um, body surface area wound, um, sometimes you have to wait for the skin to grow back and then grate it again. It's just the whole thing's pretty horrible. Um, there's some instances, for example, as you mentioned, burns in children, pediatric scalds. Um, where it's just not something you want to do because the last thing you want to give a child is um, a second quite large scar, which might not heal very well, will certainly scar. Um, so what Avita does is they take basically one eightieth of the volume of a typical skin graft, um, which all of a sudden opens up kind of the, the amount of situations that we'd use it. Um, so it's been approved in the US for burns. Um, in the US, once you're approved for something, you're basically allowed to use it off-label. So surgeons that use it have started using it for kind of their broader range of, you know, injuries. Right. I think that's what I missed when I an- analyzed it. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is I'm actually in it for that. I'm in it for vitiligo and skin rejuvenation. So vitiligo is that Michael Jackson disease, uh, which turns your skin white basically, um, which is doesn't affect your lifespan or have any painful symptoms. But what it does do is look pretty horrific um, and it's pretty noticeable when people have it. Uh, it's probably the first thing you notice about someone when you see somebody with it. Um, what Vita can do, because they basically take your skin cells and then put that in a solution, um, that is where you basically take skin from where there's melanocytes, where there are where there is pigment, and spray it down onto a la- onto where there isn't. Probably like using lasers to take a layer off first. 
Um, so that's an effective cure and they've done it multiple times. You know, they've done two studies um, published. You can see the photos, you can see that it works. Um, you can see that it creates a living layer. Um, and this is just an enormous latent opportunity. I, I've talked about this before, but in biotech, there's, there's kind of two types of commercial opportunities. One is where you have like 20,000 people a year get this disease. Um, they'll pay $100,000 to save their lives. So the commercial opportunity is this. Um, there's another kind of opportunity, which is, you know, every there's no cure um, and it's not fatal. So everybody who's ever got the disease is still alive and still has it. Uh, and they're obviously much bigger. So 7.7 .7 million people in China apparently have vitiligo and it's about 6.5 million in the US. Uh, it's not, nobody really knows because it's not something you report because there's no cure. Um, some people have it to small degrees, maybe on their back or somewhere where people don't see, so they're not going to ask for treatment. Um, but the estimate is maybe 1% to 2% of the world's population. Um, so this is a huge market, and these people have cured people of it. Um, so that, that area has always been interesting to me. Um, interesting, yeah. And the next level is skin rejuvenation. So the idea is basically you can do it with, let's say you take some skin from maybe the back of your ear where it's more fresh or whatever the right word is. Um, and then effectively spray that on a laser ablated surface somewhere where you don't want wrinkles. And are they talking about doing this or is this just something you've dreamed up? Uh, they've done it. No, it's in there. Just look on their website and you'll be able to see um, proof of concepts. Vitiligo, there's commercial studies. Um, but it's just, it's one of the situations where you've, it's proven safe. They've got like a ladder approach. But I mean, that could be massive, couldn't it? If it's actually sort of a wrinkle, a wrinkle treatment that works. It could be massive. Yeah, absolutely. If you could... Um, and that's kind of like the end goal. So you think about burns and injuries and pediatric scores, that more than justifies a substantial return on their current market cap, or certainly the market cap that we bought at. Um, if you think about vitiligo, that's an order of magnitude, at least another 10x on that probably, and I think possibly much bigger because I think it's underreported and I think people pay a small fortune to have um, such a disfiguring condition cured permanently. And then skin rejuvenation is another order of magnitude on top of that. I mean, I think there's like hundreds of billions of dollars are spent on anti-aging products. Uh, not a single one of them actually works. So you can think of like the size of that market um, and the lengths that people will go to just look, you know, 10 years younger. And I don't blame them. Yeah, but um, to, to the valuation, how do you value a stock like that? Now, if, I can't remember. I don't think it's profitable yet, is it? Uh, no. No. So how, I mean, do you have a forecast for when you think it might be profitable or is it just sort of... Um, just doing some more YOLO investing and assuming it will get <laughs> profitable at some point in the future. Look, it depends what you mean by profits. I mean, basically, you'd go by the way, I'd pro the way I approach something like a Vita is you've got these different commercial opportunities. You need to model those out on a revenue and margin basis. Um, but you're going to have to accept the fact that money comes in, it's going to be spent. And that's what you want. Like, I want them to do this stuff faster. You know, I want to see that Vitiligo trial. It should come out. Um, it's, it's happening this year. You want to have them sooner rather than later. You want them to say, we want to report a profit, you know, this year. So, yeah, you basically value on a revenue basis each of those opportunities. And, you know, obviously it's different. It's different if it's, if it's a pill, it's going to be really high margin, but it's going to be zero, you know, or rapidly fade down to zero after it comes off a patent. Something like a Vita, what they've got is like a device. Um, it's, that's much more protected because let's say I have a competitor's device. They will have to get that approved. And then they'll have to go around to every surgeon, educate them how to use their device and try and convince them that it's better, um, which is much harder to do. It's a much more defensible position um, to have something like that. So patents are, are still relevant, but less relevant to, say, a chemical that anybody could make and is precisely the same. Um, so these are, I think it's one of the more exciting stocks around 
Uh, and it's nice to see that the market has also seemed to come to the same conclusion. So, so when the, it sounds like it's a very hard to value stock. Like, so you don't know what those ultimate margins are going to be at the end of the day. You can probably take an educated guess, but you can't know for sure. Well, they're selling it. They're selling a device made of cheap plastic and you know various very cheap buffer solutions and saline. I mean, that's intrinsically you know high margin. Another one would be like Polynovo. It's like they have a polymer. Hold on, before we get into Polynovo, like with this with Avita, right? So. You've obviously uh, done pretty well out of it, but how do you know when to sell? Uh, something like a video you hold. Oh, I'm, I'm trying. I'm. I think all of us that are best are long-term investors. So you're always trying to be at your best. So you're trying to see these outcomes through. So the fact that a video has run up very hard recently is not a reason to sell. I mean, if they execute on this plan and they've got literally steps, you know, burns, serious injuries, pediatric scalds, um, onwards to vitiligo, genetic diseases. Uh, and then skin rejuvenation. Like you actually want them to use the profits and revenues from each layer of that to go into the next bigger market. Um, and then because they're kind of like staged, it's a staged approach, there's a chance they don't even need to raise that much money, um, especially now they've got $130 million on their balance sheet. Yeah, they're well um, capitalized. Okay, cool. Exactly. Well, that sounds good. So it's, it's basically, the, it sounds like the, the picture you're painting here is a strategy of you know, different stocks that have massive upside potential but you're willing to ride out the volatility on the way up. Exactly. And the volatility is it's volatility is so hard. Like sometimes at the end of last year, growth stocks in the US dropped 30 to 40%. We we're completely fine because our biggest position, Carvana, increased dramatically. And we also owned uh, PointsBet, which also basically doubled. Um, we we're completely fine. Often that happens. But sometimes you're just in that situation where everything legs it down. Um, and the trick then is just to ride it out, you know. Um, you, you, you've still got so many data touch points. Like, are they adding customers? Um, are customers spending more? So you each put time? your focus onto the actual business and how that's tracking yourself. Yeah, and specifically the KPIs. Less interested in did they so what, miss or beat what the KPI? Quarter? Like, what would cause you to say sell a Vita? Like, what are the business milestones that uh, would cause a you Vita to would be, sell? There's a challenge in something like a Vita in the sense they have to educate US surgeons, um, and basically. There's kind of two, I guess, I guess there's a mistake that a company can, like Avita can make. And we spoke to, I think it was the ex-head of R&D and the ex-head of operations of Avita. And they said they basically made this mistake is if you roll it out too fast. So if you say, if you go to a surgeon and say, you've got this amazing product, you should try it in your surgery. You're going to love it. We've got this evidence for it. The surgeon tries it and it doesn't work. They're never going to use it again. They've tried it. It's not going to work. It, it didn't work for them. So they're not going to use it. What you need to do is you need to do it slowly with sufficient education and sufficient support and certainly sufficient investment, which comes down to that bottom line profit um, argument. You need to educate people properly before they do it. So when they have their first, when they try it for the first time, they have a positive experience. You almost need somebody to read it there, you know, like tracking how it's going. Um, so my understanding from speaking to ex-employees and people in the industry is that in Europe and Australia, to a lesser extent Australia, they might have gone a little bit too fast. In the United States, they're going much slower um, and they're having a much better kind of response in the United States. So that's kind of what you're that's looking good for. Intel. If, the, if, the, if the United States um, surgeons decided on mass they didn't like it, um, well, you've got a bit of a problem. But again, that's just one particular business. You know, you're still waiting for results from pediatric schools, trials, um, vitiligo. It's worth mentioning... Um, the Polynovo and Avita are both getting funding from BARDA, which is a US agency for catastrophe funding. 
Um, so both of them are getting funded to do uh, cost efficiencies. Well, we should probably talk about something else now before you convince oh, yeah, me to point. buy a Vita. D- did you want to touch on Polynovo? Uh, actually, why don't we talk about something completely different? Because I've actually literally just did a podcast on this. What about one of your, um, what about uh, Ordinate? Are you happy to talk about that? Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, the, before we finish um, on Avita, I just want to, I did a bit of on the ground research on Twitter on Avita and I found this, a friend of mine shared this great conversation about Avita. Uh, which might get a laugh laugh from. Should we both play one person in the conversation? Uh, I haven't come across, I haven't read this before, but I'll happily. You, you be white and I'll be green. Okay, Evita right. looking good. Did you buy some? Steph Curry just hit about 30 consecutive shots pregame. Can't be far from coming back. Considering at 81.5 cents, would you recommend? You said they're looking good. They've gone up heaps since you first mentioned them to me. That's looking bad if you're buying. You want them to go down. I know, but I think based on hot copper, there could be a $3 <laughs> stock soon. Thoughts? I don't know it well enough to make an informed opinion. Remember the people posting on hot copper don't know either. They're mostly people who wouldn't know their things from their other things. Right. Um, so did interesting you think, addition. Clause. Yeah, sorry. I, I just had to bring that up. There. It's <laughs> you like, sprung that on me? Uh, yeah, sorry. I, I mentioned, mentioned that beforehand, but I just thought it was an interesting uh, example of how the word is spreading about Evita. And I'm, I guess... Uh, just just blown away with how it's uh, getting the popular consciousness now. And I've noticed some uh, broker guidances for 90 cents. So I feel like it might be at some sort of sociological in- inflection point where more and more people are finding, about, finding out about it after all we're talking about it now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think um, like all these companies, they do have to produce results. So they'll have readouts from trials. Um, this year, we'll know uh, the rate of take up in the US by the end of this year. Um, yeah, these things can really go. I mean, if they if this year goes well, well, that's the beginning, not the end. That's like kind of proving that they 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 work in more conditions. Yeah, well, I, I hope you're right. I'd love to see a massive win in healthcare stock. Well, I think uh, we've probably just got time for to touch on Ordinate now. Um, so I'll give you the quick rundown on that one. So, for those that don't know, Ordinate is a company that essentially makes the chips that make it possible for all of these audio devices, speakers, microphones, that sort of thing, to transmit sound signals via fiber optics instead of copper cables. This Wait, take this, remind me, okay, so what kind of sound systems? Like microphones? So, so their main clientele, like where this is useful. So, any sound system could use fiber optics instead of copper cables. What's to a sound system? Like... A speaker. Like. So think of the, I think a good example, a kind of customer of theirs, an end user of theirs would be the sound system in a stadium. Right. So you might have, you know, hundreds of speakers spread across like a really large area. And in order for them to broadcast simultaneously, it's much more effective for them to uh, be hooked up using fiber optics, which obviously transmit signals at the sound of light. Speed of light. Yeah, the speed of light rather than um, copper cabling. And not only that, it's actually a lot cheaper to cable with fiber optics than copper everywhere. And you have a whole bunch more power to, like, control things and turn the volume down in one area whilst turning up in another area, play different tracks in different areas. Basically, you can use computers to control how all of these signals are traveling around rather than a switchboard. So, for a large system stadiums or even you know sound systems in sort of areas like you know the the olympic areas all have sort of speakers everywhere so that they can communicate um it's you know venues it's 
anything that's sort of above your sort of living room sound system could potentially benefit from um, having the ability to use fiber optics to hook it, hook up all the speakers and any other parts of it and controllers rather than um, copper wiring. But the key here is, is the equipment that does need the ability to have fiber optic communication is the same equipment that in another scenario might not need it. But the manufacturers have to make sure that that ability to communicate using fiber optics is in all of their speakers. There's no point in making a model that, you know, can't use fiber optics to be hooked up to a system when your competitor has one that can because people are just going to buy the competing stuff because it has more optionality. And what Audinate does is it makes that chip that goes in those speakers or controllers or any other part of the system that allows them to essentially be hooked up using fiber optics. And they can either go in at the point of um, manufacture, which is the sort of fastest growing and most exciting part of it, or they can go go in you know, as an adapter at the end, which is a, also a, a profitable line for the company. But you know, going forward, it's increasingly going to be Basically, this chip is in all of the stuff that is manufactured. And the way you can sort of track the sort of the key stats to watch is how many manufacturers are using these and how many products are these chips going into. Because once the manufacturer starts to align with these chips, they're going to keep on using the chips. Now, obviously, the demand for their products can go up and down. But more than any other alternative, um, you know, these speakers and controllers and all of that, they're having... Uh, Audinate chips and the software that controls that is like uh, the software system is Dante and then that also opens up for Audinate to increasingly provide the software that controls it so, so Dante, Dante is Audinate is that part of Audinate yeah. one of the products yeah. so Audinate's sort of motto or whatever it's called is Dante well Dante spoken here or something like that and it's right. basically it's a protocol that um, allows different uh, different brands of you might have a Yamaha controller and a Boss speaker, but they can all speak the same language and they can all be hooked up using Audinate. Got it. So uh, just with some numbers, so the stock's ripped. It's gone from like I guess two bucks or two bucks fifty a couple of years ago to eight dollars now. Um, revenue's gone from fifteen to thirty-seven. So most recently, that's about a thirty percent growth rate. So is it? What Wait, is the opportunity 15, here? Fifteen to thirty-seven. Fifteen to thirty-seven from fifteen in. Uh, 2017 to 37 effectively this year. All right. Um, so what is your, is, is this already everywhere? Is it the fact that um, signif- they've got a tiny percent of the market, but all future sound systems will use this? What, what is the opportunity here? Yeah, so I guess there are two ways to think of the opportunity. The first is um, future pricing power in the existing product. And then the second is how the, how domination with, um, the chips allows it to then sell other products. So, uh, the, at the time of the last report, they were happy to boast that Dante has six times the adoption of the closest competitor. So, basically, what I would argue is this is close enough to a winner-take-all market. Right. Eventually, there's just going to be one kind of chip that's in everything, and it kind of just matters whether you have that, and it doesn't matter if you have any of the other ones. So, the other ones will drop off, and it'll just every single speaker for a large... Um, for a large stadium or anything like that is going to have Dante chips in it. And at that point, everybody needs to have it. And there's still plenty more penetration to go. Every single 
um, year, they report more and more products that are adopting it, more and more uh, manufacturers that are using their, their stuff. And this just creates basically a situation where some other company is using their capital to sell Ordinate's product. And that is, you know, that sets the scene for, I guess, low low investment required to grow because you're just providing the product. Someone else is paying for the marketing. Someone else is designing it. Someone else is basically trying to convince people to use the product, but yours is just inside there. So, it allows sort of low ROI growth, which can mean to mean like high incremental returns on invested capital. And then where that capital is being invested that brings it lots of hope um, for high profits in the future is in new products. So, they're trying to do the same thing in video, not just in audio for a start. So, what, fiber optic video yeah, cables. basically. Um, and then more importantly and more near term, they've also got software solutions that essentially work with their hardware hmm. that allows people who are controlling sound systems in huge stadiums um, to have you know, greater control and an easier time. of it. And their clients here are essentially the consultants that set up these sound systems. So, they're the two sort of optionalities that could lead to a lot of profitable growth in the future. And in the meantime, yeah, look, the... Uh, the revenue growth might not be quite good enough for you, but at the same time, the company's essentially running at break even, and you get the you get the feeling that it could, uh, could accelerate. Do you think? Do you think? Uh, I think. Well, yeah, I'll I reframe th- that. Five hundred million dollar market cap, uh, mm. thirty seven millions of revenue, thirty seven million of revenue. Where do you think it'll be in you know five years? That yeah, so growth? I think that it can probably keep up a steady revenue growth rate where right. it's at at the moment because it's sort of it's a bit it does snowball a little bit because there's quite a lag time between. Um, a new manufacturer deciding they're going to put their products, ordinate products in their new products, and then that revenue flowing because essentially um, it's a leading indicator. It's like, oh, we're deciding to put your stuff in our products. Okay, it's going to be a while before that product mm-hmm. gets up and running and we're right. selling lots of that. And Are they in that situation now? Yeah, that's say? still happening. So basically you can almost be sure that the revenue is going to keep on growing because you can see when the last time I reported that the number of um, manufacturers and the number of products that they were in continues to increase. So, you know, one of the key stats I'll be looking for is how quickly the OEM, the number of OEMs using their stuff um, work uh, increases essentially. And right. within those OEMs, what you can see for the last year is I think that the number of OEMs increased by 8%, whereas the number of products that ordinate um, chips were included in incre- increased by... 22% or something like that. Hmm. So, um, you know, basically you have this snowballing effect that should see perhaps accelerating growth, but at least probably on a percentage term, somewhat steady growth might go up and down a little bit because it depends on in, in right. it depends on how well their clients are selling. But ultimately over the long term, it should keep growing for a very long time. And then at the end of it, they're going to be in everything and they're going to have pricing power. Interesting. Um, when did you recommend this to your subscribers or did you yeah i did so initially my pre- previous role i recommended but i've continued to cover it and i've continued to hold it i think it was two dollars ninety when i first two dollars ninety yeah but i still think Good it's move. actually it's still one of my biggest holdings i think it's still got a long way to play out it's probably has the potential to be a billion dollar company in time yeah it's kind of nice when you have those stocks that double or triple and then they slow down but they're still growing at 25 30 percent yeah, I and mean, the other ones you just sit, you just sit on your unrealized gains. Yeah, so I'm sitting on this right one. Out. I'm not yeah. buying it right now, but at the same time, uh, I still think it has a lot of potential, and I, I like the optionality that it's building into the business model. 
Interesting. Um, I haven't bought it, but I'll definitely take a close look. I haven't actually uh, looked at Yeah, it right. might not be fast enough grower, but I think it's you know, it's building a strong little niche for sure. Yeah, an investor recommended it to me uh, a year and a half ago. I probably should have listened to that. Yeah, it's done well since then. Um, why don't we wrap up there? But before we do, what are you up to now? Why don't you tell us about Rich Life and how yeah, that's right. come from ethical so, equities? Why don't you just give us your spiel about what you're up to now? Yeah, so the, the thing we've just launched now, which is so at Ethical Equities, we did manage to get a bunch of supporters who have people that have made a financial contribution to right. um, continue the, the subscribers. Yeah, the subscribers. subscribers, right? So what we get them PME, you get them Ordinate, you get them these amazing stuff. Yeah, I don't know what they have good hearts anyway. So. <laughs> We've used that money to launch a new website, a new brand called A Rich Life, which is essentially aims to be um, the thinking person's uh, periodical, uh, providing information on investing. The same old ethical investi- ethical equities investing is now a column of A Rich Life, so that's still part of it. But you've also got information on arts, culture, history, and that kind of thing. So we're basically trying to fill out and be something bigger than we were before and grow. And then we hope over time uh, attract different kind of or audiences and introduce them to investing the ultimate goal here is basically to provide a, a high-end publication that makes people wealthy in more ways than one sounds good uh, i'll certainly subscribe are you taking subscriptions now no no we're not we're not open for more supporters yet but we will be really soon and you can join the wait list so okay claude i'm ready put me on the wait list yeah <laughs> thanks a lot awesome thank you Thanks for listening, everyone. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating. Five stars only, please. Claude will join us next week. So let us know if you have any topics you'd like us to cover. Uh, And if you'd like to know more about me and what we do, you can subscribe to our investment updates and analysis at www.frazzascapitalpartners.com. Thank you.